Welcome to the Tej Talks Podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. TejTalks.LearnWorlds.com Check it out. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of the Ted Talks podcast. I have Sam Dyer on the show. I believe he's my first guest who invests in Scotland. Now, he reached a point, you know, after buying lots of BRRs and, and single lets and actually sourced £8 million worth of property up to now, kind of where he thought, you know what, buying lots of these individual ones is great, you know, buy to lets are fantastic, but why can't we just do this whole BRR thing with maybe less refurb, less work? Uh, maybe more of a paperwork exercise, I still pull our money back out, get a great return and do it quicker. That sounds pretty awesome, right? So if you're at that stage where you're like, I want to do bigger stuff, perhaps, you know, developments, flips, conversions, conversions, whatever, maybe that's not the right path. Maybe it is, you know, it definitely could be. But have you considered purchasing portfolios and purchasing at such a discount that you actually get, you know, all or a vast majority of your money back out at the end and they're tenanted, and they don't require much work, if any, that's, you know, in terms of work versus reward and yield, it's a pretty awesome strategy. Now, look, you don't just, you don't just go on right move and, you know, find a portfolio. It's not as easy as that. But, you know, if you can find one house, I bet you can find four or five for sale together. So we talk about buying portfolios and buying tenanted properties. And we touch on the Scottish property market just to give you a bit of a uh, an insight into the differences between that and England. So enjoy. Sam, welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Hi Tej, yeah, thanks. I'm delighted to be on. I am really looking forward to this one actually, because when you sent me an email with, you know, the kind of your background and the stuff you've done, and actually what this podcast is going to focus on is pretty much something that for me personally, I'm kind of exactly at the point where what you do is really, really relevant and important and something different. Now, you know, for, for my people out there who love buy to lets, you're really going to like this, this podcast episode because we're going to talk about buy to lets on steroids and different ways to make your life easier. Maybe you don't have to deal with so many builders. I don't know. We'll, we'll kind of look into that. But before we go into this, these kind of awesome strategies you're implementing, Sam, you know, give us a bit of kind of your background, what you've done and what you do. Yeah, so my background, I I grew up and my dad was very, you know, that generation, get a job with a big company, get your pension, work your ass off, uh, build a good salary and everything will be easy. Mm. So I kind of got strongly encouraged to go to university, get a degree. So I scraped through a civil engineering degree into the oil industry, making some money. What do I do with it? bought a couple of buy-to-lets, um, nothing exciting, just walked into estate agents, bought a couple of buy-to-lets. Um, personal life and thinking about families, I thought this isn't the life for me. So jumped ship, got a job of a severe stroke estate agent, lasted about a year. And I accidentally um, set up a sort of, it was like a sourcing and management company. So um, fast forward a few years, where I am today, I've, basically got two main business focuses um so i've got a a few sort of holding companies investment companies where i just 
accumulate uh, properties, mostly buy to let, but um, doing a bit of commercial now as well, but just building a portfolio of investment properties. And on the other side, I've got a trading business, which is a property management company. We're operating sort of Glasgow through the central belt of Scotland. Um, but we've got a big focus on investor landlords and we've got an acquisitions department, which is, I guess it's like sourcing, but it's more about um, engaging with investors, helping them spend their cash. Um, and we collaborate with a lot of sourcers. We do sourcing in-house. But long story short, it's a property management company that has a buying side, and that's my trading business. So one thing I'm quite passionate about in you know, anyone that wants to build a big portfolio, I think that having a trading business that runs alongside is a phenomenal thing to do. And there's so many advantages, not just generating cash, but there's just so, so many advantages that I'm not going to go into just now because um, i sure we want to get on with this podcast. And when you say trading, just for people who don't know, you mean buying and selling, essentially? No, no. Well, when I say trading business, it's um, most businesses are either an investment business or a trading business. So if you set up a company and it does nothing but hold properties, um, and that you rent out that's an investment company a trading business is a business that trades so it could be flipping properties but really um let's look at like tesco tesco is a trading business mm. um, a letting agency is a trading business if you're a plumber and you're going out and doing jobs for people it's a trading business so the, the thing about trading businesses versus investment businesses is they're treated differently by hmrc and the taxman um and they have different functions now one thing that's worth noting at the moment particularly with you know, coronavirus has just been or oh, it's still here and the government are giving support to trading businesses if you're an investment business they're like nah see you later but that isn't just a coronavirus thing that's in general the government prefer to help trading businesses because trading businesses are fueling the economy investment businesses is just people hoarding money in assets so you know it's trading businesses there's so many advantages and ultimately trading businesses usually have staff and then you can have pension schemes and all the rest of it so and um, i hope that that makes sense yeah, explanation. yeah no it definitely does and i think you know it, it's a nice distinction to make between the two people who haven't done you know kind of either before and yeah i suppose it makes sense the government support trading businesses more <laughs> you know it's kind of it's quite a logical approach from them for once i suppose and uh am i right in saying that you have sourced just under eight million pounds of property for investors yeah so that is um so so my trading business my letting agency uh dire and coal property it's called which funnily enough when i set up all the logos and the facebook page it was just going to be a trading name for my own portfolio alongside my brothers Um my brother's got nothing to do with it anymore he's just a guy that owns property that's the gist of it but it evolved into you know, uh, a sort of basically I bought a few flats for myself and then went and bought a couple of my brother. So I was basically sourcing for my brother. Then I went and got one for a family friend who actually lives down south of England in Essex. Um, and um, then it kind of grew arms and legs. And so, yeah, I just sort of grew arms and legs. That was sort of 2015, 16 then sort of 17, 18, 19, it kind of morphed into a business and it grew alongside my letting agency. And yeah, we're at, we're just shy of 8 million at the moment. And that's the sum of the purchase prices. So the value of it now is probably going to be a lot more. Um, but that's just the total of all the purchase prices. So I'm quite proud of that, actually. 
and I'm gunning for 10 million next. That's obviously the next um, hurdle. Wow. That is a lot of property to source. And actually, just before we, we get onto the bulk of the podcast, what is, and this is a very broad question, it's obviously, you know, answer it as you wish. What is the Scottish property market like? Wow. Uh, <laughs> I, um, I know it's very pop. It seems to be very popular with people down south, as in, in England. Um, I know they talk about the Northern powerhouse, and they mean Northern England, but Scotland as well. Um, you know, the prices, you know, you can get three bedroom, ex local authority, um, terraced houses, you know, in, in mint condition, you're looking at 120 grand in a good area. You can get them down at 70, 80, which you don't really want to touch those areas at 90 grand. So that's sort of that's the sort of numbers you're looking at. Um, you can get four bedroom detached family homes, you know, modern, nice areas. You're looking at 250, 300, 350. Wow. So it's really cheap. As soon as you hit half a million, you can get massive stuff. Of course, you've got your hotspots. You've got Edinburgh. You've got East Renfrewshire, which is sort of the south of Glasgow. Um, there's some very expensive houses there. Aberdeen's got some really expensive bits, which is fueled by the oil. Other than that, though, um, most areas are quite cheap. And you've got little bits like Stirling and Perth and so on and so forth. So it's, it's cheap. Um, but the rental market's very strong. The returns are very strong, so strong yield, strong ROIs. And so a lot of um, my lighting agency has got a lot of overseas investors, like Hong Kong, South Africa, Australia, etc. Um, and they seem to love, well, it's, it's the UK that they love, but Scotland, I don't know what it is, but there's something about Scotland that investors just seem to like. And um, so there's a, there's a lot of English investors who are buying properties in Scotland for whatever reason. <laughs> I think, yeah, that, that's kind of what I've heard about it. And also, I suppose, you know, if you live in London, you could drive six hours to Yorkshire or to Liverpool, which great areas to invest, or you get a, what, one hour flight to Scotland uh, at your convenience. And I, I think maybe there's that that plays into it. People say, well, hold on a minute, I'm further away, but it's easier and arguably maybe cheaper to get there, you know it's just on our doorstep in a way. So I think that maybe there's something to do with logistics. That's what I keep hearing from English investors who, who invest in Scotland. So I think no. yeah, it is, diff it is different, but it's also, it's pretty much next door. But what it is, it's the same as part of the UK, but it's slightly different, like different law. So I know that conveyance and process in England is pretty brutal. Whereas so many English investors are like, wow, conveyance is so smooth in Scotland. Um, we need just, that. England <laughs> is, is absolute shit. We need your system, basically. Especially with, is it is it that if you offer your offer is legally binding as well? Is that a thing? No, not until missives are concluded. But you basically offer. But um, well, well, the way it basically works is you put your offer in, you exchange your letters, which is like your missives, and then they get signed, and that's a done deal, no backing out. And then your settlement date could be anywhere from on the same day to two months in the future. So it's this thing, about once you've exchanged missives, the contract's tied up. So you, we could ex say exchange missives today, but not actually settle the transaction for two months, um, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. I don't know, like, gazundering is illegal. I think that's illegal in England, is it? I'm not sure. Well, but, well whether it is or isn't, it happens all the bloody but time. But I know in, in England you can put offers in and then people pull out quite a lot, do they not? And for yes. stupid reasons and sell to other people. and um, So many stupid I, reasons, yeah. 
I'm not really an expert on the English system. It's something I want to try and learn because on a personal level, I do want to start investing in England just for a bit of diversity. Hmm. And um, I'm not going to get political here, but if <laughs> if Scotland gets independence, then I think there's going to be a lot of money moving into England. So I guess it'd be a bit of insurance. But hmm. um, yeah, well, you know, who knows? I, I don't think independence is going to happen. I really don't think it's going to happen. I hope it doesn't happen. Um, but, you know, it's... Uh, but for, for the main, Scotland is different. There are things that are better, but there's definitely things that are better in England. There's a bit of a mix and a mash. And what you tend to see is the governments copy each other. So if one mm-hmm. comes up with, so like you guys are getting EICRs, you know, your electrical installation yep. condition reports. They've been in Scotland since 2015 and England's only just implementing them. Wow. Whereas your EPC regulations, your minimum bandings, that's been in England a while, hasn't it? Mm. Yeah, well, that's only just come out in Scotland October last year. Mm. Um, right to rent does not exist in Scotland, um, whereas it does in England. Tenant fees ban, we had it in 2012, I think. You guys oh, wow. had it like last year. Um, so so and it, it, it's both ways. It goes both ways. There's things. So I think, and what the governments do is they copy each other, but um, governments are notoriously slow at implementing anything. <laughs> so well, uh, yeah. it takes a while to catch up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it definitely does. And that's interesting. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a nice kind of overview, actually. And I'm sure, you know, if people want to learn more about investing in Scotland, they can, they can get in touch with you. So let's talk about what I kind of alluded to at the start, which is, a common situation which you and I kind of discussed offline, which is one I kind of find myself in, which is, look, done all these BRRs, great, you, you know, pulled most of my money back out, they're cash flowing as passive as, you know, can be in this situation. I love them. I want more. I mean, I personally want 12 more this year. Do I want to buy 12 individual ones and do it all again? Ugh, I mean, I will if I have to, but I'm sure there's another way that I can go big and do something a bit more interesting, maybe just a bit smarter, but still have the same results. Sam, you were in a position like this, and then what did you do about it? Yeah, so it was kind of all gradual, and it sort of evolved, opportunities popped up at the right time. So I was churning along, buying properties one by one, uh, by refurbished finance. I did the common thing where I thought, hmm, private investors fantastic so since 2016 i haven't bought anything for my own money i've always done acquisitions with private finance since 2016 what i'm also finding is um so again linking slightly back to the thing about the government being slow to bring out legislation um 2008 obviously we know there was a, there was a property market crash um, there was irresponsible lending there was x y and z there was this body set up called the PRA, the Prudential Regulatory Authority, and their job was to well, prevent another crash happening. What can we do to the finance market? And so in 2014, they brought out a set of regulations regarding residential mortgages, so mortgages on homes that you live in, basically tightening the rules, asking for more paperwork. And you may you may or may not remember at the time people moaning about mortgages, oh, they're hard to get now and blah, blah, blah. Fast forward to the 1st of October 2017 and a similar bit of legislation came out for buy-to-let mortgages. And that's when this whole thing where are you a portfolio landlord, you own four or more properties, you're a portfolio landlord, right? You need business plans, you need cash flow statements, you need all this stuff. Now, that was as a result of 2008. Now, why am I telling you all of this? Because what has happened is the market is evolving. It's becoming a lot more paperwork um heavy 
And one of the big things that lenders are looking at now is you fill out a portfolio schedule, right? You own four more properties, fill out your portfolio schedule. So every property that you own, you put them on the schedule, you put the value, you put the current mortgage, you put the rent. There's two things the lenders are looking at. The first one is the uh, the rent serviceability. So how much rent are you making? Does it service the debt? And they've all got their own little calculators and formula to do that but the second one is what is the loan to value of the entire portfolio now if your loan to value is high it makes it trickier to get finance so for example the mortgage works you're one of the common vanilla buy to let lenders who do limited company they if you have 10 or more properties and um, they will not give you a mortgage unless the background portfolio is leveraged below I think it's 65%. Don't quote me on that. Pretty sure it's 65%. Mm -hmm. So if you're keeping everything really highly geared, you're impeding your ability to get finance. Now, one more point. I'm conscious I'm talking a lot here. There's one more thing that I discovered and it blew my mind. Um, so by the way, just, just to give you a bit of context here, I'm a big fan of pay over um, repayment mortgages. So my strategy is kind of been, so I've got my wages, I've got my trade and business, at the front end to pay my bills got my investment company i do all my acquisitions using private finance but then of course my investment company is is generating rental income so there's profit there now all of that goes into paying down mortgages and that's how i run my portfolio and what that does it's yes you're going to get some capital growth but you're also cleaning up and you're de-risking now the other point I wanted to raise, besides the loan of value, was having unencumbered. So you may find yourself in a position, you've got your portfolio is quite established, you maybe you're a few years in, and your mortgages are coming down, your debt's coming down. A clever thing to do would be to refinance one to wipe out the debt on another. Now, why would you do that? Now, there is an ability to... So I was looking at a deal um, beginning of last year. And the per it was his portfolio was 17 units. It was valued at 1.6 million, and the purchase price was 1.15 million. Now, if I was to buy that with a private investor, I'd need a lot of money, either a million cash to cash buyer, or about 300 grand. If I was you know, buying it on a mortgage, and then so on and so. So anyway, but I was speaking to this lender, and they said, "Have you got 300,000 pounds of unencumbered property?" And I was like, I've got a couple of unencumbered, yeah, but I don't have 300,000 of unencumbered. And she said, well, if you did, we could put the 300,000 pounds of unencumbered property, we'd put charges on them, that becomes your deposit, you'd then get a 100% mortgage to buy it. Mm -hmm. If you bought low enough, what you can then do is refinance the whole thing, pay off the mortgage, remove the charges for the unencumbered, and you've got basically bought a property with none of your own money. And then you've got your battery on encumbrance. And I was like, wow. <laughs> so I've now, and you can do the same with bridging. So um, I'm doing a deal in a minute where we're going to bridge. But I'm putting a couple of my unencumbrance in a security. And what it means is rather than bridging at 80% loan to value, because I've put enough unencumbrance in, I'm actually bridging at like 91% loan to value. And it means you put very, very small deposits in. So having those unencumbrance, you're only going to get there if you've got a bit of debt consolidation going on in the background enables you to be very very aggressive on the acquisition so um i hope, I hope there's a couple of uh, find that valuable sorry no it definitely is and you know I, i've done this before with one unencumbered i pretty much bought two with no money in from one unencumbered and 
it was like magic because I was like, well, no money has left my account, but I've got two sets of keys. What is this? Like, wh- what is this magic? Um, of course, you have to be, you have to have enough time, enough funds, you know, to kind of then pay them down. So it's not something that, you know, I suppose most people are going to have instantly in day one. But like you yep. said, you've consolidated it over time with that trading business, which means, you know, you can use these assets as well, like gold bars, essentially, to give them protection. Exactly. Over. And and you can potentially use your rental profits to service debt on new finance while you're on the acquisition stage. So I, I kind of see every acquisition in three stages. You've got your acquisition, you've got your sort of refinance and getting out of the deal and paying everybody back. And, and then your third stage is parking it long term and just holding it forever or maybe sell it eventually, depending on your, your sort of strategy. Mm. And, you know, let's talk about portfolios. So, you know, of course, the ideal is to, you know, where possible, of course, buy X multiple kind of properties, do a BRR, or or even do a BRR without actually having to do the R, the refurb in the middle. Um, <laughs> now, that would be ideal, especially if you could pull, you know, some of your money back out. Now, you know, where do I start? I mean, when it comes to purchasing portfolios, maybe what are your sort of, so if I've never bought a portfolio before, what's your sort of first bits of advice that I should be doing or looking out for or calculating? So the first portfolio that I bought, I was like, whoa. But then when I actually got into the nitty gritty of it, it's no different to buying single units. The numbers are bigger. You're doing due diligence on more than one property. But really, there's nothing really that different. It's And when I did it, and I went, is that it? And then I looked at the value of the property I was adding to my portfolio, and I thought, wow, that was cool. <laughs> there really is nothing different. But there are, a, okay, there are a few subtle little things, but fundamentally, there's nothing that's different. Now, one of the things generally, if you're buying a portfolio, you're going to find all or most of the properties are usually tenanted. Unless you're, I suppose, you could class, you could buy a portfolio that's technically a block, be it an office block or a residential block that's completely and utterly knackered. There was one kicking around Scotland. Um, it was six flats maybe in a wee village in Ayrshire. And they'd basically like been, been fires or burnt and there was like a hole in the, the floor. Um, one of, you opened the front door and there was a hole in the floor down to the next flat. Now, they weren't having, so that was technically a portfolio of six that were vacant, which you would refurbish. But most portfolios for sale will have tenants in them. So you, if, if you've experience of buying single units with tenants in them, again, it is exactly the same process. Um, so what I found was, so maybe give you a bit of context. When you're buying a portfolio, there's going to be a whole mixture, right? And one of the common ones um, there was a block we purchased in Aberdeen uh, two years ago, and there was just four flats, and was it three were tenanted, one was vacant, and they were all a bit tired. So you, so you basically buy again, you refurb the vacant one, put it out at a higher rent. Then with the other three, by that point, another one had left, so that got refurbed and let out again. And then after about a year, the other one vacated, and you, know, you, you basically work your way around the block over a period of time and then refinance at a later date. Now, that block still got one of the original tenants, but it's ticking along and it's fine. So you can do a sort of gradual work your way around and refurb them as you go. But 
there's another deal I did last year, and all it was six flats in the same block. All of them have been fully refurbed. We're in immaculate condition about a year and a half, two years prior. And it was actually a fund that was selling them, and they were basically just trying to get capital out to put into tech. And they just needed as much capital as they could, so they were very, very motivated. And um, bought, basically bought six immaculate condition flats, 24% discount off the valuation. So we just go in and buy at a low value, and then you can there's, – there's various different ways of doing it. Um, but ultimately, you can release your money at a later date and have no equity, or no to little equity in it. Now, one of the big things that helps make the deals work is your economies of scale really start kicking in. Because if you buy a single unit, typically you're a thousand pounds for your solicitor. Now, that particular deal, the solicitor was three thousand six hundred, not six grand. Um, the insurance. It's just the same. You bundle the insurance together. You bundle the mortgage together. Now, you can imagine six properties in one mortgage is way less admin than six individual mortgages. So all these little things start pulling together. Because they're all in the same block as well, they're easy, it's, just, it's, just, it's just a bit easier to manage it as a landlord and also for the letting agent. Um, so there's all these economies of scale kick in. But one of the important things in Scotland, we've got this bit of legislation called multiple dwellings relief. And this is kind of, it, it came out. So to give you a bit of context, we all, I'm not sure what it's called in England, but you know your 3% additional property tax? Stamp duty, yeah. Yes. So, yeah, you've got stamp duty land tax, and then the 3%, has it got its own name, or is it just? No, I think it's just part of that. Yeah, so in, in Scotland, we've got LBTT, not to be confused with LGBT. Yeah. But LBTT is land and buildings transaction tax. And it's, it's exactly the same as stamp duty. I think the Scottish government just thought, ah, we need a different name because we're, yeah, whatever. But it's got its own, own name, totally different, se- separate set of legislation. It's similar to stamp duty. The bandings are slightly different, um, but ultimately it's the same thing. Then we've got what we call ADS, additional dwelling supplement. Instead of 3%, it's 4%. But at the same time, they brought out this bit of legislation called multiple dwellings relief. And it was kind of, it was not very well known about and I'm a bit of a geek for legislation and just knowing stuff. And so I kind of knew about it. And it seems to be gaining popularity in Scotland. Now, what is so cool about a um, multiple dwellings relief is if you're buying six or more properties in one transaction, you don't pay LBTT. There's nice. no stamp duty. Now, pause for a minute. You do pay some tax, but you pay considerably less. So what multiple dwellings relief does is it applies a formula to the, the portfolio to work out how much tax you actually pay. Now, <laughs> most solicitors have no idea how to do it, and, and I've heard the term you need a, a degree in rocket science to understand it. <laughs> and one one thing, I'm, I'm not sure if it's the same stamp duty, but for, for land and building transaction tax and for you know, your all, all these taxes for buying properties, it's a self-assessed tax. So it's like doing your self-assessment tax return. Now, your solicitor will fill it out for you, but ultimately you sign it to say it's okay. So if you if it gets mucked up, it, the onus is on you. But what multiple dwellings really basically does, it does something like it says, what's the average purchase price um, of, of the block, uh, of, of each unit? Then it has the minimum prescribed amount. And then if there's a bit of commercial in, it adds on a whole load of like X to the power of MC squares and all this sort of <laughs> fancy stuff. It is, honestly, it's you, Google it, you go, wow. But anyway, to cut a long story short, this block of six flats are purchased. The purchase price was four hundred and five grand. 
And if you're paying 4% of that, I know that 4% of 400 grand is 16 grand. So you're going to be just over 16 grand if you're buying those six flats individually. Now, the stamp duty bill for that purchase was £2,187.50. So you're basically saving best part of 14 grand. Wow. But what's so cool is when you go up to like the millions, the savings become tens of thousands, like big savings. So like a million pound portfolio typically will come in at about nine or 10 grand rather than 40 grand. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So it's, you can see the economies of scale really start kicking in. Mm. And so then, you know, when it comes to, I suppose, you know, leaving no money in it, how does, I mean, could you give us an example with some figures so that we can really understand like how it works that you can buy a portfolio, have all these at once, generally tenanted in okay condition or immaculate condition, but pull your money back out. How does it work in a kind of numerical sense? If you've got an example. Right, so there's various ways you can structure it. So um, one of the first things to, to note is when you buy a property, a single unit, and you pay £80,000 for it, um, you refurb it, and then you so say you bought it cash, you stick a mortgage on, you refinance it, it's now worth, let's say, 150 When that mm. surveyor comes out to value it, he's going to look on the land register and go, you paid eighty grand for that, and he knows that. When you buy a portfolio, though, it, this doesn't always happen. It depends on how the solicitors have done the transaction. I think if there's title splitting and that sort of stuff. But what you'll notice is, so say you've got a 10-unit portfolio, 10 properties in it, and the total consideration was, let's say, 1.2 million. If you looked up any of those 10 properties, it would say consideration. It would either say, like, we met, it wouldn't tell you, and it would just say, like, refer to whatever, or it would say 1.2 million. So the surveyor's got no way of knowing what you paid for each individual property, which is already an advantage from that respect that you're kind of disguising what you bought it for. So, okay, let's just start with the simple one. Compare it directly with buy refurbished finance. Um, and you're going to buy buy a portfolio of cash. Now, you need a hell of a lot of cash generally, but let's just, first of all, so you, you could just buy it cash. If you bought it cheap enough, you're going to get a bit of rental income coming back into the pot, and then you're simply just going to raise a mortgage on it and pull the money out, right? That's the probably the most straightforward way of doing it, but it's not very practical because you need huge sums of money. Now, another way of doing it is you buy the block, obviously at a discount, on a two-year fixed-rate mortgage, um, you buy it at such a price and then you either six months take, uh, you either pay the early redemption charges, which usually doesn't make sense and refinance it, or you wait wait the two years and just refinance it then. So it's obviously a slower way of getting your money out, but it's a more passive, I suppose. And if you're doing enough deals, you can just go right, bump that there, wait two years, pull it out, go again. Now, there's two other strategies that I've been using recently now the first one it kind of came about by accident and what happened i had um so obviously back to my trading business diet and co we're obviously my day job is speaking to investors and helping them spend their money on their own acquisitions and then my company will manage them i have a business partner in that company who is like the operations director so she's running all the, the actual letting side so i had a investor who is about 180 grand or something like that. And she wanted to spend about 130 to 150-ish. She wanted to top her pension up. Um, she was divorced. Um, I think she, obviously, this is the money she got back. She didn't want the capital. She didn't want to lose the capital. 
she kind of wanted to be safe. But then she was like, well, I want to buy some bike to let. I don't really want to be a landlord. And then there was all oh, the mortgages. Am I going to get them? And, all that. and there was like all these blocks. So that was going on at one side. I then came across this deal. And at the time, I didn't actually have the cash to pull it off. I think I needed like 100 and 140-ish. Like, can't be right. Must have been, yeah, it must have been close to 150. Yeah. I needed that cash to make this deal happen. And I thought, well, she's got the cash. And then the first chat was, let's do a JV. We'll buy it 50-50. And it was all complicated. And it was really confusing. And it was whatever. And then we came right to this idea. She goes, well, I don't really want to own this. I just want to make the money. And how we structured it was basically, I bought the whole building in my limited company with a mortgage, um, obviously at a discount. But then the deposit and all of the fees were funded by the private investor. And I've took, I've got a five-year contract where I'm basically borrowing 150 grand and I'm paying 5% interest monthly. They're getting 625 a month over five years. At the end of the five years, they either just keep the contract in place or I pay them back the 150. Um, so there are a few technicalities here. Um, and anyone listening that's familiar with mortgages and how much um, they lenders hate private investors you have to structure it in a certain way you have to be you just have to you have to know the rules and work around them and it's not really something i'm going to mega detail on the podcast so yes private investors hate it if you sorry lenders hate it if you've got private investors in your deals so this only really works if you've got alternative business things going on basically but what happened, and what the key thing to, to, to note with this is that investor did not lend against that property. There's no charges. They are not linked to that property. That investor lent, lent the money to my business. Mm-hmm. So you know, the, the, the contract is with my limited company. A limited company is basically born 150 grand, paying them 65 a month, and that's it. It just so happens that that capital has ended up to pull off this deal. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, yeah. So, because um, obviously the lenders are going to do all their checks, they're going to make sure that everything's above board and everything's tickety boo. Um, so anyway, so what happened was there's 150 grand, then there was like 280 or whatever from the the lender. You plunk that together. That is your deposit, your fees, and everything you need to get that deal over the line. Um, I think that particular deal, I put just shy of three grand in. But the reason that happened. It was the valuations and the mortgage broker fees, which were all paid before settlement. So what I didn't want to do was draw down some funds if the deal wasn't going to happen. So effectively, I've got three grand in that deal, basically is what I put in. Mm-hmm. Now, that block is worth 530 and I purchased it for 405 So what happens now? Basically, I've got two mortgages. I've got one to a private investor, one to a lender. So the cash flow isn't as strong as if I just bought it with a mortgage, but obviously I put no money in. Now, the rents were all a bit low, but they still worked. Now, that deal concluded 10 months ago, and we re-let two of the six, and it went from 2375 a month, it's up to two and a half grand a month. And ultimately, when we get them all re-let, it'll probably be up about 2700 um, And the cash flow is about round about a grand, but it's probably going to go up a little bit. So what I'm actually doing with this deal is parked in the portfolio, forgetting about it, and I've got a small repayment and I'm chipping away that mortgage debt, chipping it away, chipping it away, getting it down. So at some point, I can then either 
refinance the building to pull out the 150 to pay off the private investor when they want to exit. So what I'm really doing is I'm converting that 5% private investor loan into a 3 point whatever percent mortgage. Mm-hmm. So it will come down. Or if the investor wants to stay on board, if, if the numbers allow me to do so, I'll refinance and take that money to go towards another deal. But again, this is the thing I was saying, because I have a lot of my portfolio on repayment, it allows me to, you know, basically you're running a business here, you're making decisions, you're moving things about, but what you're really trying to do, you're trying to move forward, but at the same time, you're clearing up behind yourself. So that deal might not cash flow very good, but if you've got other assets that can sort of support it, it allows you to be do things like this. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And, and I think, I guess a question, you know, on that is obviously you have to buy the portfolio at a discount. So I suppose what I'm thinking is, well, if it's a case of, you know, your, I think generally as it is, your money is made on purchase and you may not have to do any refurbishment work. Is the main challenge or the main reason why, you know, everyone's not buying portfolios because you need lots of cash to do it but if you have lots of cash you can have an incredible discount is that right um right see on the discounts could we can we just part that just for a wee minute i wanted to show the other strategy you use for buying mm-hmm. portfolios but that's a very valid question and i will come on to the discounts you're absolutely right there has to be some some form of discount or value add i want to come back to that mm-hmm. and discuss it in a bit more detail so that's one way. So basically, that strategy is like having two mor- two mortgages, effectively. Um, the other strategy, which I'm using more recently, is bridging. And again, it really works best if you've got a discount. Now, again, you can leave money in deals, but if you're leaving a, a few grand in, a, in your big portfolio, you're not as bothered um, you're, but you're, if the deal works. Um, what I've also found as well is as I... Sort of matured as an investor i'm not so i'd rather have a good quality asset leave a bit of money in than a lower quality asset with no money, all my money out just because long term you want the better quality assets uh, but when you're starting out you're yeah, getting your money out getting the cash is obviously more important now with the bridging strategy bridging is expensive what it allows you to do is get your money out fast so for example you would bridge the portfolio buy it on a bridge as soon as you own it, pretty much you could refinance straight away. Now, the six-month rule can cause a few issues with certain lenders, but there are lenders that will do a day one remo. But generally, there has to be some refurbishment to prove that. But for the main, let's just say you're waiting six months, you could buy on a bridge with very, very little cash, service the bridge for however long, then refinance onto long-term lending, and you can pretty much release the large majority of your capital. Now, the reason I'm doing this strategy more is that you're putting little capital in. So, and, and again, the, the, the example I said earlier of the unencumbered, I could borrow a lot on a bridge, but very, very little cash in, which means you, and then you're, obviously you're generating income when you buy it, you whatever, and then you're servicing the debt, and then you're pulling most of the money back out again. So to give you a bit of context, as a portfolio we're assessing, um, it's actually one that we had structured with, trying to get it agreed before Christmas. And unfortunately, the seller is a big, com- big, big business, big company. And the basically the manager we're dealing with, yeah, we've got a deal, to put it forward to the board of directors. And they went, yeah, we want another 60 grand. 
were just like, fuck. And they basically they played hardball and just nah, it didn't happen. So the numbers on that one though, the purchase the value was I think nine hundred and eighty, and the purchase price we agreed it's twenty five percent below whatever the value is. And I think it was seven twenty, seven three five, something like that. I've got a calculator in front of me, and the bridge was going to be about six hundred and something grand. But it worked out we're buying the purchase price was seven hundred and something. The deposit was only ninety eight grand, so you put ninety eight grand down, seven hundred odd purchase price, but the value of the portfolio is not far off a million. So then, obviously, you get that over the line, you get you get the rents and all the rest of it in. Then, what you do is refinance it, and if it values near a million, you're getting seven fifty back out. Now, the reality is, it probably value a little bit lower because lenders like to be harsh, and I know um, you've got a lot of experience with that lender surveyor. Sorry shafting you on valuation so you have to have that as a bit of contingency uh, but ultimately you can recycle a big chunk of cash but one of the big things is your fees yes the fees will be higher in terms of like the real terms but if you look at what you're paying per unit find the, the purchasing fees reduced significantly your eight your your four percent three percent stamp duty um is a lot smaller you start looking at the numbers and you go wow this is pretty cool but it is not. It's definitely not a strategy that you would jump into if you've got no buy to lets. Having a little bit of a background helps, and that's actually another really important point. I had a client in my trading business who basically inherited a couple of houses, sold them both, and he had about four hundred grand to spend. Now they worked in the financial services um, most of their life, and they were quite clued up in investing, but they'd never done landlording ever, never done buy to let, and they'd been listening to. Um, Actually, a good friend of mine um, hosts a podcast called the Scottish Property Podcast. I think you, I think you've interviewed had an interview with them. If you're not Stephen and Nick, hmm. yeah, I, mean, I, think, yeah, I think you, yeah, I think they, yeah, you were on their podcast, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. Right. yeah. I, I suddenly um, got so, so many Scottish followers afterwards. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, um, Stephen's a really good friend of mine. We live in the same town. Uh, a JV partner. And Nick is, I know Nick quite well. He's got a, a letting agency as well. So we're technically competitors, but we're not. But Nick's a really good guy. Um, but anyway, the, the, my client had been listening to their podcast and um, obviously learning about portfolios and the six, buying six or more and all this and all this knowledge. And he went straight in as a first time landlord, tried to buy a nine unit portfolio. And the lenders just went, nah, <laughs> nobody would lend. Did you know why? Because every single lender said, we we'll, won't lend on a portfolio mortgage if you've got less than two years' experience as a landlord. So even if you wanted to do it, you can't do it. Um, and that was a bit of a bummer. And obviously, he had to get a couple of single units, get some experience under his belt um, before he could. But he was obviously a very passive investor. He wasn't wanting to get his hands dirty do refurbs. And he just wanted to acquire the assets quickly um, and obviously let my company manage them. Um, so it's so that was just, that really drummed home. I wasn't, I didn't actually know that, that you couldn't do portfolio mortgages with less than two years experience as a landlord, but it's something to bear in mind. But um, absolutely, when, when you learn all this stuff, you're like, wow, that's so cool. Why have I not been doing this before? But I do think that getting the experience doing small units, doing one or two is invaluable experience because it's really, really valuable experience to get, get, get your head before you jump into the bigger stuff. Definitely. And I think that's a lesson, you know, across any strategy and across anything. It, it's quite, well, it's quite tempting, isn't it, to hear what you're doing and to just say, well, you know what, it, it's the same shit. I'm just going to jump straight into it. But 
there is so much you learn from doing even the most basic, you know, single bite alerts. There's so, so much that you learn. Um, so yeah, let's talk about the, um, the discount point that we kind of spoke about before then. I really want to know about that. Yeah. Okay. So I think what, what you're, so, so what I'm finding right now is, um, so section 24, you know, the removal of mortgage interest tax relief. I'm sure we all know about that. Um, but do, do you want me to go over that briefly or no, do you no, want skip, to explain skip that? Yeah, that's fine. That's cool. Just an, um, so obviously, what that has done, you've got lots of experienced landlords, 10, 20 years in the game, properties in their own name, massive tax problems. And I've picked up a few phenomenal deals, um, even like tenanted properties, but don't need anything done with massive discounts. And the reason is because the, the, the seller's got loads of equity in them. They've got capital gain, sorry, um, yeah, got loads of equity because they've bought them so cheap, like so long ago. So if they, they've got capital gains tax problem, but they've also got a Section 24 problem. And very often, some of, I, had, I had one guy who was a 40% taxpayer um, from his job, and he was stuck on variable rates, and it was just an absolute mess. And so we got some phenomenal discounts. We bought them all tenanted. Now, if you find someone with a big portfolio, very often that there's deals to be done because what you're buying it for, you might think, wow, it's a massive discount. But if the, if the, the, the owners owned it a long time, then it's maybe not a discount to them because they've bought in, they've got a debt at a certain level. They're just looking at, well, what am I getting? And so, so sometimes you can pull off a deal simply because of that. And I think it's kind of common sense. People with big portfolios have probably been in the game a while, so they're probably going to be tired. So I find the best deals seem to come from tired landlords and when they've just had enough and it's a huge problem. It's the same it's the same with single units from the motivated seller and all the rest of it. Um, you're looking for tired landlords. And so the discount is coming because of the simplicity. Now, think about it. If they're going to sell them and maximize the value, what are they going to do? They're going to kick the tenant out. Now, that could mean an eviction. That's a pain in the backside. Um, they then get the property back. It's then maybe needs a little bit of money spent to get it looking, you know, a little bit of pain, a little bit of that, get it looking amazing. You've then got to pay an estate agent. Then it's sitting there empty. It's probably got a mortgage. So, oh God, you know, you've you've got to pay your mortgage and the council tax kicks in and Christ, why don't I just give a discount and get it away tenanted with no hassle? So that's usually, you're getting portfolios at 10, 15% discount. is pretty straightforward. Getting them down at 25%, there has to be a pain point. There has to be something that's motivating it. Um, but again, it's the same, it's the same principles as if you're buying single units. You're, you're looking for, you're looking for a motivation, um, to do so. Now, that's certainly if you're mint condition stuff, that's, it doesn't happen often that you get big discounts. Um, if you're buying in depressed markets, obviously that works. Now, in Scotland, we have the advantage of, we have Aberdeen and Aberdeen, um, I don't know if you're aware or not, but the Aberdeen property market is very closely linked to the oil industry. Mm-hmm. So whilst the rest of Scotland is booming, things are going crazy, they're selling way over asking price and blah, blah, blah. Aberdeen had a, uh, the oil crash was in 2015. The property market followed suit. It sort of bottomed out 2019 and turned a corner, which is when I started buying there. And the market conditions in Aberdeen right now is like the rest of the UK in 2010, 11. So it's at the bottom of a slump. So there's lots of deals to be had there. Um, and maybe we shouldn't be broadcasting this on the podcast. Everyone's going to start buying in Aberdeen. But, uh, so, you know, it works well. You can get um, stuff for discount. But 
again, the thing you're buying the smelly houses, buying the stuff needing work, you can add you can add significant value. You maybe don't necessarily get a discount off the current value, but you're buying a block of ten flats. Some are occupied, some are not. And actually, it's probably good if half are occupied because you can refurb two or three or four. When they're done, you're letting them out, and the rest of them probably someone served notice, and you can work your way around the block. And what you can also do is you can use the rent to help you refurb them. That's actually a really that's a strategy that Grant Cardone talks about a lot. Um, he says buy a big block. You know, maybe you've got ninety percent occupancy, and you just refurb them as they vacate. And over a period of time, you increase the value, and you can you, you increase the rents, you increase the value, and you get your money out. Um, and when you start doing really big blocks, the numbers just gets really, really exciting. Now, I think the difference though of America is they've got like massive, massive blocks, whereas in the UK, especially in Scotland, I mean, a block of six, eight, ten, twelve—that's sort of what you're looking at. Um, unless you're in like the centre of Glasgow or Edinburgh, there's not many blocks that are like 20, 30 units. But it's you know it's the same it's the same principles. Whether you're doing six or whether you're doing twenty, the same principles. Other than with the bigger blocks, you start going into things like you know, you've got fire regulations. You've maybe got your EWS ones cladding, depending on the style of build and the height. Um, you've got other issues to do with communal areas, um, but generally it's not too different. Again, I keep saying this. I've said this a thousand times, haven't I? Single units up to portfolios. You're just buying buy-to-lets in bulk. That's all you're really doing. Unless, yeah, you're doing, I don't know, you're buying them and you're SAing them and you're doing this and you're doing that. But no, for me personally, I just pay everything out on, on long-term lease because um, it's the most passive. I'm more, I'm more park it in the portfolio, move on to the next acquisition. Um, so, hmm. I mean, is there a strategy in you know, buying a portfolio, potentially one that's not in the best condition, maybe, you know, I've seen it where some are tenanted, some are empty, et cetera, et cetera. But I suppose my question is in a kind of generic way, is it, is there a strategy in buying a portfolio, adding some sort of value or, or maybe not, but actually you then selling them on individually at sort of market level? Is that a, a sort of strategy worth the time? Is there profit in that generally? Absolutely. Um, so funnily enough, I had a client that was buying a portfolio of, I think it was eight, and there was one straggly one that was just pants, and then there was, there was seven. And what he was going to do, um, buy the portfolio, keep seven, sell one. But you, it, it, it does make sense if you know that before you go in. So his strategy was I'll put a single mortgage on the single one and I'll put a portfolio mortgage on the seven. Because obviously, if you've got a portfolio mortgage and you try to sell one, I've never done it before. But I know it can be difficult. I did know of I did know of a landlord who was selling properties on a portfolio mortgage, and it was an old TMW product from like twenty years ago or something. And she said it's really difficult, but it can be done. But fundamentally, it's that thing where you kind of need to know when you go in. Funnily enough, there's a portfolio I'm appraising of a JV partner at the moment. Um, there's a block of nine flats, and then there's a single flat now. We kind of want, wanted the block of nine. And the single flat seller kind of said, this would be really helpful if you could take this one as well. So what that allowed us to do was to be able to negotiate more because we were getting, taking that flat as well. But what we're planning on doing is the nine will go on one mortgage. We're actually going to bridge the whole thing, refinance the nine onto one mortgage, and the single one will basically refurb and flip. And so what that also does is that's 
generate the flip will generate some capital which will help make it an all money out deal if that makes sense so yeah absolutely absolutely and another a common strategy just while we're talking about this and it's something that i want to do more of is just buying um so as i was talking before i work with private investors it's um i'm turning up to get sort of well, we're going to go into fca you know when you do crowdfunding it's all fca and fees and all the rest of it but um, go into a position where you can just cash buy huge lots and what you basically do is you flip all the crap to auction and you keep all the good stuff and if you're bridging you can kind of exit whatever way you want or if you're cash buying obviously you can exit whatever you want so yeah you can buy a portfolio you don't have to keep everything absolutely you can flip stuff and what the auction houses are saying is you know um one of the biggest auction houses in scotland is future property auctions and i've got a good relationship with the business development manager there and he basically said the vast majority of their sales are between um is it 25 and 65 grand and it's crappy little flats and really naff areas and he says you're he says we sell so many of them so these sorts of units if they're part of a portfolio as long as the numbers all work you can exit them at auction quite mm. easily mm. I, I like this because there's there's multiple exits which means sort of less risk you're de-risking the whole thing but you have the option of obviously better to plan it from the start but you know if you're buying it on a bridge to re- or investors to refinance it later you've got a lot more flexibility with oh you know what maybe i'll sell that one actually kind of within that period when you're waiting to remortgage it so i suppose taking it back a step actually is you know some of these properties maybe or all of them might be tenanted uh when it comes to buying tenanted properties you know i think there's a little bit of unease maybe felt by landlords and people because we haven't picked the tenant you know you know how easy is it to prove they've actually been paying their rent and they're going to continue to and they're a good tenant i mean what sort of due diligence or extra checks do you put in place when buying tenanted properties versus just vacant ones really good question um yeah we've got standard checklist that will accompany any offer where there's um tenants in place um of documents that we want things we want done and you know, very often we might already have them so they don't have to go in the offer but there's a standard checklist we use excuse me now first of all if it's tenanted you would assume that it's legally compliant trust me that very often they're not yeah so first of all you want your safety search your gas safety the icrs your epcs legionnaires disease um uh pat smoke alarms so i don't know some of that that's what we have in scotland so i think the six and carbon monoxide as well so you want your safety search you want a copy of the tenancy agreement now we always refresh the tenancy agreement um post settlement to reflect the new owner now you're not too worried about the tenancy agreement and all the bits what you really want to see is what's the rent when when's it due what's the deposit you know you just want to see what terms have they signed up for then you'll refresh it anyway now that leaves beautiful and you've got the deposit so if you buy um I don't know, six properties or got a 500 pound deposit you get it over the line where are the deposits i know where to be seen so obviously you've got the deposit scheme so you need proof of the deposit that it's been lodged and very often it can become part of the um, purchase i had a client purchase a property once and the, the seller hadn't protected the deposit but all that happened was it was part of the transaction and 400 pound went through the solicitors and then it got deposited in my, the client account of my trading business and we just 
protected it once we got over the line. So sorry, so safety search, lease, deposit, you want to check in inventory. Um, now, if it's a self-managing landlord, 90% of the time they don't do these. So you just you just kind of, you know, that's at your own discretion if you want that or not. Um, we did it, it's a lease deposit. Um, I should have got this list up in front of me. Right, paying the rent, that's a really good one. You want rent accounts. Now, if there's a letting agent that the seller's using, they should have rent accounts. So you want to copy the rent account and it'll show all the, you know, the dates that the rent was paid and all the rest of it. Um, and then you may want to do may want to do checks on a tenant. It's not always necessary. If they've been in there eight years or something like that, you might think, well, actually, they're quite stable. But, but fundamentally, the best bit of due diligence you could do, view the bloody thing and speak to the tenant. <laughs> Um, very, you know, the standard one I use is, oh, I'm a surveyor or I'm a whatever, a builder or, or a factor. Or, and just speak to the tenant, you know, ask them questions. See if you get that, you know, the gut instinct. Is this tenant, you know, a total sound human being or are they going to be a nightmare? And just see what you can learn, you know, because um, they'll start telling you stories. Oh, yeah, you know, we did this, we did that, or that didn't get done. And you just start learning things. And that can be one of your best bits of due diligence. And then you've just got the paperwork, obviously, back it up and of course as a buyer it's at your own discretion if you want to leave stuff out uh, but fundamentally you're i would say i suppose the position i'm in because obviously you've got a letting agency as a trading business it's a lot of the same skills you know you're, you're just doing due diligence on a tenant it's already in a property it's not too different um so mm. but i think it's definitely it's definitely important people do that because I mean, look, if you, I don't know, you, you didn't notice, a, a, you know, something in a property on a physical refurb, you know, yeah, it's going to cost you a couple quid extra, a bit of time, but it's easily fixed. A bad tenant is, well, currently 12 months of headache because of the pathetic government, at least in England. Um, you know, we have no support. So when it, when it comes to a tenant, like the DD needs to be in depth. Um, because you can't fix that problem very easily and it's not getting easier for landlords. So people listening, like really, really do your DD on tenants. Um, you know, one tenant not paying, that's your profit gone. And in buy to let land, you know, that's all we got. Uh, <laughs> so Sam, you know, these portfolios, I have only, well, actually I've just seen one in auction today, which is quite an interesting one. Um, I've, heard of one other and that was maybe like two properties so arguably not a portfolio how and where so obviously you have an agency you're quite well placed to find these things but if someone wasn't you know how could they find portfolios for sale there's a really good question most portfolios are not on the open market you'll find the surveyors often have them um again i'm not sure the big surveying firms in England, but in Scotland we've got DM Hall, we've got Shepherds, um, Allied Surveyors, Graham and Sibold. I don't know if any of them operate in England as well. Um, a lot of them, they're obviously commercial property surveyors as well, and they sell commercial property, and they very often sell portfolios. Um, so that that's mainly where the open market ones turn up. Auctions, that's a really good point. Um, I had this discussion with my contact at Future before, and he basically said, why would we do it? Because we bring in a portfolio we make the most money splitting it and selling them one by one. So what you very often find is you get these guys, these traders that come in and buy like 50 in one go and then just go drip feed them to auction and flip them all one by one. 
Now, the auction house makes the most money and the seller makes the most money. If you're selling a portfolio, well, who's your buyer? A, you've got less buyers, but B, who is your buyer? It's an investor. They're going to haggle you. They're going to want a deal. So that's why auctions typically don't sell portfolios. They do sell them occasionally. It's usually small ones, two units, four units, you know, a handful. I've seen it a few times. So most of them are off market. And you're right, um, when the letting agency, um, I kind of got a bit of an advantage. But one of the things that I I sort of made sure, I made sure everybody knows that I buy properties. When the, the trading business has done deals, shouting about it. Um, and so our office or our business gets contacted frequently by people who are looking to sell properties. Um, they just go, oh, yeah, I'm selling such and such. And very often, a lot of it's just, oh, I've got a beautiful family home. I want a full price. And we just go speak to it. So we, we don't do property sales, obviously, because we've got the acquisitions. So we just refer them to whatever estate agent we feel is best for that area. But very often, there'll, there'll be landlords who are tired or whatever, and they just come to you. So making it more relevant for, for your listeners, um, social media, use social media. If you're building a property portfolio, shout out about all the stuff you're doing. Shout out that you're buying properties. Make sure everybody knows that you buy property. And what will start to happen is deals will just appear. One of my favorite stories, I was um, a few years ago, I was um, at a property with this mortgage broker that, that I do a lot of business with, and he was dropping in to see this client on the way home. I mean, we were down in Glasgow, so we were driving home, and we dropped in. And he said, can you do me a favor? Can you do a lease, make a lease for my client? And I was kind of like, what? What, not charge him type of thing? You know, you think I work for free? He says, I'm devaluing myself and all this. <laughs> and he just said, trust me. And I went, okay. So I went into this house, and this guy, he was a, he was a tradesman. He was... Um, not very academic, um, and you know, you need, you need and, I, and I thought, and just, just, I just got a whole mannerism of this guy. I don't want to work with him. He's just going to be an absolute waste of time. Um, I just, and that was my um, stereotyping, and I actually feel really bad uh, because he's a really, really nice guy, uh, really down to earth guy. So anyway, I did the lease and trust him. Well, anyway, we got um, where we're at now. I, I thought we don't manage this guy's portfolio, um, but we, we, we help with paperwork and it's, it's quite good. But what actually happened was <laughs> in this same meeting, he sort of um, looked up and he went, you guys buy, who's is it? And I'll translate for you, right, from the <laughs> Scottish. You guys buy houses, A. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he goes, oh, and this guy worked in a very specific geographical area. And his pal, Davey, was uh, basically um, buggering off to Poland with his young wife, and um, he he had a portfolio of properties. And I tell you, these are really badly run cash rents. It's all over the place. So he put me in touch with Davy, and it was just a case of I need rid of these. What do you want? Gave me a figure, and I fell off my seat. <laughs> One of these deals we did, I bought a three bed house, and it was all money out plus profit, um, just because the price this guy said he wanted, and I went, that's what you want. He went, yeah, and I just did the deal. Now. That referral came off this guy who I totally looked down on. So, but that the reason he asked that question was he saw me on Facebook going, "Yeah, buying houses, buying houses, buying houses, buying houses, buying houses," and shouting about it. And he just said the thing, and it led to a thing. And and so very often you'll find the circles of people in local communities that don't understand the property investment game, they don't understand business, they don't like this guy doesn't like guys in suits, doesn't trust white collar workers. You know, he's a hands on guy, very very local. Um, these circles of people can be a really good place to get deals as long as you don't go in there like an absolute arsehole and look down on them. 
um, you're there, you're, you're nice to them, they'll let you in their circle and you'll get access to deals. And so that, that actually led, funnily enough, led to more deals because I got into that circle. And then and now where I'm at today, we are, we're doing leases for all these random landlords in this area. Now, we're, we're not going to, we did take on a couple to manage and we kind of ended up giving them back because it just wasn't working. Um, and it's all mutual, but we, we just do all the paperwork for them now, help them with their paperwork and they just get on, you know, doing what they do best, you know, um, be it joiners, plumbers and all the rest of it. So really the message I'm giving here is, well, A, don't be an arsehole because there's no time for arseholes. You'll treat everybody nice. But B, tell everybody you buy houses and just constantly tell everybody because what will happen in the early days, no, you know, I was just some dude, but because they're just so um, relentless and constant, People just start noticing and then opportunities come. And it beautifully leads into my last point about the trading business. If you have a trading business that is linked to property, you can basically be um, getting into networks while you're at work. So mine's a letting agency, uh, but I was speaking to a guy recently who's a plumber. I says, well, yeah, run a plumbing business. He says, you, if you, you could become specialised as the plumber for investors or something like that and make all your clients investors. And you're going to get into networks while you're working and that will lead to opportunities. So I, I don't know, I, I get a training business that links in nicely and it could be, um, so for me, I know that my property portfolio will probably make more money long-term than my letting agency, but my letting agency is a huge network and access to opportunities. So that's, and it's, you know, does that make sense? Absolutely. Uh, I think, you know, you really can't, judge a book by its cover the, the classic line i mean you never know who has money to invest with you who has deals who has a an absolute steal of a property portfolio who who is a builder who could, you just don't know who anyone is especially not on first impressions and i think a lot of people with wealth or assets actually don't look that way you know especially when you look at some of the famous people like billionaires mm-hmm. they do not look like they have billions they look like they have a couple of quid some of them but they're some of the richest people on the planet. And yeah, that's definitely an important lesson. And shouting about it, yeah, that'll get you deals of any type, anywhere. Uh, so that's a, yeah, really good advice there. Sam, we, we have reached the end of the podcast and it's been fascinating. It's been really, really interesting learning about this strategy, which frankly will just make my life and I think a lot of people's lives a little bit easier. And instead of having to buy four by to lets, add you know x amount of equity one after one after one just do it at once i mean i'm i'm down for that so uh sam i really really appreciate you sharing this if people i mean i'll put your details in the show notes but if people want to get a hold of you what's the best way to do it um instagram seems to be the channel of choice recently i kind of stayed off it but i've quickly become a favorite so i'm I'm on instagram at Obviously, Sam Dyer Investment. I'm also on uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, exactly the same, Sam Dyer Investment. And my, I guess you can drop a wee email to the trading business, Dyer and Co. Property. Um, you know, if, if you need to speak to us, just about Scotland in general. Uh, but yeah, it's really, really, I think social media is the best. Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn are the best places to reach me on. Um, and obviously, obviously, Tej, um, reach out to Tej if. We need a direct introduction. I mean, I'm happy. I'll speak to anyone. I'm not one of these guys that's like, no, I'm too good for you. I'll speak to absolutely anyone, even if you're a brand new beginner. So please reach out because we've all been there before. 
and I'm happy to, to answer any questions or elaborate on anything that I've said on the podcast. I love that. Sam, thank you so much. No, it's been a pleasure, Tej. Thanks for having me. If you like this podcast, connect with Tej on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube for more great content.